I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, the good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. Uh, it is our 69th episode. And I don't know if you nice. know Matt. Yeah, it's a, that's just a significant number in a lot of uh, cultural kind of products. I don't know if you've heard that, that trope or that meme. Mm, yeah, I think I have. Yeah, it's the uh, uh, it's the sexiest number. It is the sexiest number, and I I almost felt like maybe we should just go from sixty eight to seventy and just skip it, like good um good Christian boys. But then because I because we're so like, virtuous and chaste, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but then I thought, well, I do always think of one person when I think of the sexy number, and that person is Pastor Mark Driscoll. Oh boy, that that guy, that hunk of a man. <laughs> That real, just hunky, muscly, just uh, velvety-voiced, silver-tongued pastor, Mark Driscoll. Uh, Hang on, I'm going to Google Mark Driscoll without shirt. Yeah, Google Mark Driscoll deviant art. Hang on, I'm going to Google Mark Driscoll sonic fanfic. (laughs) Oh no, Matt, no! You're You're going too far! Uh... Yeah, man. Uh, he's uh, a real uh, he's a real sexy uh, young pastor with a lot of things to say about how you should treat your wife very poorly. And yeah. Also, Sonic loves him. So... <laughs> I think he's always talking about uh, going to hell. People going to hell because he's so hot. <laughs> That's right. Well, in light of all of this extremely uh, seductive sexual talk uh, this week. We'll be exploring a really neat book that you probably haven't heard of, but now you will, called Biblical Porn, Affect, Labor, and Pastor Mark Driscoll's Evangelical Empire by Jessica Johnson. Um, So we're going to talk with her and ask her some kind of questions about her research and her book on Mark Driscoll and just get into that real good, uh, that really good, (laughs) that really good and exploitative uh, Mark Driscoll Marisol Church. Yeah, you better start running a cold shower right now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so 
this week we're reading Biblical Porn, Effective Labor in Pastor Mark Driscoll's Evangelical Empire by Jessica Johnson. And to uh, talk about her book is Jessica Johnson. She's here with us. Um, so uh, to get us started um, in the conversation, Jessica, can you just kind of give us like an elevator pitch for your book? Um, maybe just explain uh, what it is for people who haven't read it or aren't familiar with Mark Driscoll and that whole weird side of evangelicalism. So uh, yeah, just an elevator pitch, I guess. Sure. So I consider biblical porn to be about dynamics of authority, sociality, and, and subjectivity. Um, when I first attended the church and started going to, for my ethnographic, ethnographic field work, um, I was interested in understanding how so many young men and women were drawn to Mars Hill in Seattle, um, especially considering Seattle is considered one of the least church cities in the United States. Uh, so the book Initially, I was just invested in closely examining Driscoll's rhetorical performance, um, particularly his preaching on what he deemed to be uh, biblical masculinity, femininity, and sexuality, and then how this teaching was transmitted uh, via various media technologies uh, and processes of mediation. But then in the second phase of what I'd considered to be my fieldwork, uh, when I came back, left Seattle and I came back after a visiting um, gig in Miami. Um, then I started looking into public testimonies by shunned congregants and confessions by repentant leaders um, as they began to surface online. This is in 2012. And increasingly became interested in how conviction and religious movement could be inspired and maintained despite it being spiritually abusive. And this is the language that was being used by um, the people who were publishing his testimonies, um, as well as emotionally manipulative and materially exploitive. Um, so as a result of the book is really about um, affect, desire, power and politics, and you know how, how these um, dynamics played out on the ground. Um, my hope is that the book serves as a cautionary tale given Driscoll's ability to found a new church in Arizona and regain a public platform. He's got a few things going on now in the media and he has a new book coming out in October. Um, but I would say that his key arguments also speak to the populist appeal of the Trump administration and uh, suggest alternatives for rethinking the polarizing cultural climate that the government feeds off and foments currently. It's such a cool book. Um, and to me, some of the power just comes from like having been in um, like in an evangelical situation for a good portion of my life. Um, and seeing you write about kind of the intricacies of um, – like what the abuse looked like at Mars Hill and sort of like the rhetorical strategies of Driscoll are hugely important for me just as somebody else is like thinking about this. I remember being in college mm -hmm. uh, when Mark Driscoll was like really popular and I had friends who like loved him and uh, seeing this all unpacked is kind of like some reverse retribution or something like someone's paying attention to how bad <laughs> this was. <laughs> Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. It's It's been great because I've actually gotten a lot of um, responses from people in ministry or um, people working or teaching at um, Christian colleges. So uh, that's already started to happen and the book's only been out a month. Um, so it's been really nice to kind of get that feedback from people who have come from abusive, what they consider to be abusive, um, you know, congregational environments or um, are teaching about that dynamic as it's playing out on the ground. And uh, it's, yeah, it's been really great. I, I, I can't complain about the kind of reception I've received thus far. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, it's definitely well-deserved, well-earned for sure. Uh, we were really happy to, to read it through. Um, and I can echo Matt's statements too, as far as, uh, I, I feel like I was probably like the target demographic of somebody like Driscoll at a certain point in my life, you know, like a young sort of evangelical, kind of like frustrated with Christianity 
a little too like edgy for my own good uh <laughs> but thankfully managed to escape um you know i guess like by the by the good calvinist grace of god that uh, <laughs> that trap or something um but uh one thing that i think is really great about reading this book on this podcast is uh, i mean we talk a lot about christian kind of connections to the left and we've done one or two episodes maybe about like pathological kind of uh, tropes that we see in christianity of which we're both you know apart um but i think this is the first time that we've read a book that engages like anthropology and ethnography to like really get into some of the actual dynamics in a movement like uh Mars Hill and these kind of like a very reactionary sort of christianity so um to kind of get through some of those tools that you're using could you outline a little bit like what is uh, the kind of ethnographic work that you're doing and uh, how do you think that it kind of opens up a place like Mars Hill and and uh, helps us understand that a little more than say like a journalistic report or something like that yeah, for sure. Great question. So, um, you know, we use, anthropologists use ethnography, um, and, and basically that's our primary instrument of investigation and writing. So, um, so it's a both-and situation, which makes it interesting in terms of the kind of a re- relational and ethical challenges you have when you're in the field, um, because, you know, that kind of field work and the intensity of, like, going to a place, like in my example, um, I'm not a Christian. Um, I identify as a feminist. Um, so I started going to the church and actually my research wasn't going to be about the church when I started attending. It was actually about same-sex marriage politics. And that was, um, I was looking at both sides of the issue and basically how, you know, more conservative Christian or, um, anti-gay marriage legalization groups were mobilizing as well as, um, LGBT positive groups and those activists who were mobilizing for gay marriage legalization, um, were interacting or not interacting in the kind of ways that their language might be overlapping in, in, and so I was, I was went into Mars Hill without any sort of defenses up. Um, I was just curious, and that is a really cool thing about ethnographic fieldwork is is that sort of the understanding is you go into the field, wherever that may be. Most of the time, anthropologists go away and they leave the United States. In my case, obviously, that wasn't that didn't happen, um, and I can talk through that for why I didn't. I wanted to do my research in the United States anyway, but um, but yeah. So I I basically went in without a defensive posture. And I think being open to the experience of just being in this space and listening to people and observing what was happening um, while participating in it. So ethnography is often called participant observation, which in many ways makes no sense, but um, it's a clunky sort of hyphenate um, shorthand for what we do in the field. Um, But it really, but in my case, it was a rich tool because it gave me this opportunity to engage um, in this very distinct kind of atmosphere. Um, And in one in which I did not feel comfortable whatsoever um, from the get-go, because again, my orientation is just different um, in terms of how I, I see the world. My worldview didn't resonate with what Driscoll was speaking at all. Um, but I was curious, and and I was again very curious because this church at that time in 2006 had already gotten quite a bit of buzz, um, was growing, um, attracting again this young demographic in Seattle. Um, I had a lot of students um, when I was working at the University of Washington, where I, I, I continue to teach now, um, who went there. Um, so, so I was really interested in how that was that popularity and that kind of buzz was was being you know cold and cultivated. Um, but then also, 
within that, I started very quickly <laughs> realizing that there were power dynamics that were very disturbing and troubling to me. Um, so it was this this kind of um, uh, like yeah, the troubled feeling and that discomfort is actually to my mind a good thing, and that means that there's some kind of learning going on, um, and there's a kind of engagement again that I couldn't necessarily. Um, be always on top of, but that kind of confusion and that troubling feeling was actually very rich for me um, as an anthropologist. So, so when I talk about the power dynamics and observing those happening on the ground, I also, you know, in the book, I interject myself in the scenes quite a bit um, in order to show the reader how these had a certain kind of you know, affect and then effect, um, you know, and how that actually impacted me as an anthropologist and uh, someone who is non-Christian feminist. Uh, cool. That's a really great explanation of sort of the importance of ethnography for the situation. Um, well, to set the table just a little bit more for the larger conversation, I think at the end, um, can you tell us a little bit about Mars Hill, the church, the community, sometimes the building like uh, Mars Hill uh, plays like a really important role um, in the sense that like Mark Driscoll's always talking about how it's like, you know, the the uh, fastest growing church in the country and they keep expanding the building and they like, um, you know, redo it a few times for uh, different purposes. Um, it's a it's kind of weird because like, you know, you don't usually think of churches as really entrepreneurial entrepreneurial projects, but in a sense, <laughs> Mars Hill is that. So could you tell us about like, Mars Hill, like the church, the community, and then maybe give us like a timeline that we can kind of work with as far as your book goes? Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, I, first of all, it was theologically driven by a sort of neo-reformed Calvinist orientation. Um, so I think that sense of predestination and um, the sense of sin and the ways that those um, play out within Calvinist um, circles had a huge impact on, you know, those very dynamics that you're describing. I mean, one, the sense of like growing is good, you know, um, as long as the congregation continues to multiply, um, and the media keeps paying attention, um, and we continue to get this buzz, um, it means we're doing good work because we are actually, you know, um, playing out God's hand on earth. Um, and so, so there was a sense of like, okay, we, we keep building, we keep growing. This means that we are doing a good thing and we're doing God's work. Um, in addition to that though, <laughs> the sin component was also very strong. Um, and this impetus to continually confess um, to various forms of sin, but then you know that played out in very gendered dynamics in terms of what women were, what feminine sin was and what masculine sin was. Um, so, so the complementarian gender doctrine combined with this Calvinist theological orientation and then the sort of rise of neo-reformed, you know, um, groups, you know, across the country at that point in time. So, so Driscoll and two other um, pastors, it was actually co-founded by um, three people, three men, but it started in Driscoll's basement um, is the you know, this is the narrative, um, in 1996. And um, Driscoll will always like to say that it was the size of a small Mormon family to begin with. Um, and it started rapidly growing by word of mouth. And so again, this is the narrative of, you know, we didn't even have to do anything. People just started coming to us, right? Um, and Mark's preaching was very, um, 
you know, he used sarcast, uh, uh, sarcasm and a sort of sardonic humor. Um, he would often talk about, you know, emulating Chris Rock as, as you know, that's the guy he would learn from in terms of his own preaching style. Um, so that had a certain kind of attraction, I think, given the, the milieu and the time that he was preaching. Um, and then also, you know, so it started in 1996, and by... So 2003, it, it finally found a home. It was sort of bouncing around the city for a while, but continued to grow. Um, and then they invested in this warehouse space, and um, that became sort of the central location for a while until, again, they, they started going multi-site. And that began in 2006. But when I, and that's when I started attending. So it's interesting that I actually started attending in the fall of 2006 as the, the church was just starting to go multi-site. So I had this really interesting window into what that looked like. And, you know, it sounds all good. So we're talking, I'm talking about it in terms of, you know, this kind of blessing and the sense of like we're doing God's work, God's hand is part of, of the movement that we're a part of right now. Um, but it was also, and Mark was getting a lot of positive media attention. Um, but then things started to turn a little bit. And in 2006, he came out with a blog post about Ted Haggard um, when that scandal hit the fan. Um, and he basically said that, he didn't say that Ted Haggard's wife should have not let herself go, although that was kind of the, the way that it was taken up by certain people, like in the Huffington Post or other kinds of outlets. But... Um, but he did say that women, um, especially Christian wives, who let themselves go, aren't really helping their husbands stay within the marriage and, and um, faithful. <laughs> so, um, so that leaked out and got some national buzz and attention. And I started to realize that this was something that Driscoll wanted, right? And the sense of you know controversy constantly being embattled constantly being pushing, you know, pushing against the, the so-called mainstream culture or secular culture and pushing against that sort of um, resistance to his own, um, you know, language and the way that he would stir things up. And so, so I started becoming really interested in, in how he would continually stir up these controversies and, and put himself out there in that way. And that, and that really, you know, fomented a sense of impending crisis at all times, right? And so that sense of crisis also became um, very important, I think, to the way that people felt um, that sense of labor, right? Like having to give continually to the church and having to defend Mark continually from, you know, whether that be the press or the feminists or whoever, right, um, could be couched as an enemy or a threat. Um, and that really was becoming increasingly fascinating to me is like how this dynamic happened. Um, and then it started going internal, um, whereby in 2007, um, there was a change um, to the bylaws of the church. And um, there was a pastor, there were a couple pastors actually, but one in particular who came out and said basically, you know, I don't think that these bylaw changes are, are a good thing because they started to make disciplinary actions against unrepentant congregants, a much more formalized process, um, and actually, you know, led to shunning procedures that were organizationally deemed okay, you know, um, and form, again, formalized. Um, so, so that pastor came out against those bylaw changes. It was also a sense of a shift in authority because 
as the, the church started going multi-site, there were campus pastors, and they had some jurisdiction over what was going on in a different location other than the central location that I'm speaking about that I attended where, where Driscoll would preach live. Um, and Driscoll's voice and his image were piped into these other locations. He refused to allow the campus pastors to have any sort of, you know, preaching um, responsibilities. Um, and he wanted to, to basically disinvest in the sort of pastoral care and ask those pastors, among others, um, who again were attending to people's needs, <laughs> um, to, to invest more in that process so he could, he could just preach, he could write his books, and he could keep up the image of the church and really, you know, make the brand of Mars Hill, you know, him. Um, but all the time, at the same time that he was doing that kind of work behind the scenes, um, he would actively say things like, I don't want my face to be on a bus advertising Mars Hill as my, you know, kingdom. Um, but that's really what he was doing. And so his, his authority became much more concretized, much more established as the titular head of the church um, through those bylaw changes, while at the same time, um, you know, asking other, other pastors on the ground, again, taking care of people to really um, feel undermined by his authority um, and under his thumb. And so when that pastor, for example, in 2007 said, you know, I'm not really behind these bylaw changes, he was put on a trial. Um, and, you know, it, it's a convoluted and long story, but basically he was fired and it was the first time, at least, you know, officially in a sort of, in a very public way that any pastor was fired from the church. And then his, him and his family were effectively shunned. Um, and it, it was a really sad, you know, and, but, but, okay, so I'm there, right. I'm, I'm actually attending the church at this time while all of this is going on behind the scenes. And so I had a window into it and I had actually spoken to the pastor who was fired and had some interactions with him. So when he left and when, or when he was just no longer there from my point of view, um, it, I noted it, I knew something had happened, but you know, as an outsider in that sense, I wasn't an insider in terms of knowing, you know, leadership at that point in time. Um, I didn't know what had actually happened. And so people started slowly but surely over the years just disappearing. Um, leaders would just be gone and there wouldn't be any explanation. And I started recognizing too, because I was following things online when I would go away, for example, that year I was gone um, teaching elsewhere. I was following things as they were happening online. And, and then people's all their work basically um, would be taken away from any sort of, you know, media. Um, their names would be, you know, erased from any sort of um, narrative about the church's history. Um, so, so it was really, you know, uh, starting to be scary. I mean, it, it started mm. to become a, a sort of a very scary environment, um, and I started to to glean that um, in a way that was much more intelligible to myself. Um, but, you know, I, but I felt it in a different way when, when I didn't know what was actually happening, you know, so it's, it's part of the narrative of the book is again, in my own confusion, <laughs> you know, I'm very clear that, you know, I wasn't an authority in the sense that I knew what was going on at all times. And I don't come across as an expert about, you know, um, what was happening, but I, I actually show 
how, again, that my presence and being there at that point in time actually impacted me greatly. And I, I first started recognizing it bodily speaking. And that's why affect is such a huge part of the book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's get into that um, in uh, just a second, the affect stuff. I think this is, it's really good that now we have a, a, a good sort of window into the, the timeline and some of the um, toxic culture that emerged while you were experiencing that. Um, yeah, uh, I guess there, so there's a story in your book, uh, where you start talking about getting, uh, nauseous and throwing up after listening to a sermon at Mars Hill. And it's a really powerful kind of moment because you, you note that it's not because of any particular content, you know, you couldn't identify one thing that you're like, oh, it makes me sick that you like said this thing. Uh, but rather, uh, you suggest that it's because you're contrib- contributing to what you call, uh, the affective labor or Mars Hill. Um, I think that's a really interesting way to understand like the creation and sort of maintenance of uh, a group in evangelicalism, that affective labor piece. Um, could you say a little bit more about that? You know, what do you mean by that? And how do you think that that uh, helps kind of pull evangelicals together? Yeah. So in the case of Mars Hill, um, Mark's humor and the way that he would use that to, to play his audience, um, I think was a huge part of you know, establishing this kind of sense of, of group, um, of belonging. And laughter, gestures, um, various kinds of responses of the nervous system that we always, we can't always be conscious of or make intelligible to ourselves, um, articulate to ourselves exactly what is happening at that point in time, is um, what I'm describing in that sense of affective labor. Affective labor is also about care. Um, so, you know, I talk about these couple, two different modes basically that I'm thinking through in the book. And so the care aspects, and this was both men and women, but their affective labor was again, gendered differently. Um, but you know, for men, it was, it was making sure that that sense of growth kept ongoing. People would sacrifice, um, by picking up their families and their lives and moving elsewhere to make sure that. There were, um, you know, leaders at a new location, for example. Um, you know, the kinds of security detail that was ongoing in order to protect Mark um, when he was preaching. Um, the kind of labor that went into the IT presence of the church. Um, you know, the online content and the graphics and just everything was stellar. Um, it was really attractive and and very. Um, you know, in a sense, sexy. Um, so so the, that's part of what I'm talking about. But then there's also the aspect of labor that women provided. And, you know, they, they were highly sexualized. Um, I experienced this myself when I was going there, um, especially as a single woman. Um, I, I definitely felt a certain kind of suspicion. Um, and that, that's, that came from both men and women. It didn't matter. Um, so, so you're already marked in a certain way, um, depending on whether you're single or married as a woman, um, you could be seen as a threat by people very easily because that's how Driscoll would preach about what it was to be, um, a sexual being really, um, as a Christian, right? There was this constant sense of like women, you're supposed to please your husbands at least once a day sexually or else they're not real men. So, you know, there's that kind of affect of labor that you're giving over as a Christian wife. Um, but on the flip side of that, you know, men were supposed to give to the church and women being, making sure that men were fidelitous within the marriage 
also made sure that they kept on track and provided that kind of volunteer labor for the church. So, so there's a lot of people giving a lot of labor to the church for free um, or or for not very much pay or always feeling like, again, the sense of like my job might be threatened because I might disagree with something Mark says. And if I say something or somebody gets that kind of impression, then, um, you know, I could I could lose my job. So there is there is this constant sense of threat um, that came along with that sense of affective labor. Um, and so when I talk about that scene and vomiting after the sermon, um, I really felt at the time, well, at the first, again, at the time, I didn't really know what was happening, but that was the very time when that's, that um, bylaw change conflict was ongoing. And I don't feel like there's any sort of mystery to me at this point that I was feeling that sense of conflict as the leaders were experiencing it themselves. Um, and that, you know, it was, a, to me, it's about spiritual warfare at that point. There's something that that sort of took over, bodily speaking, for me, whereby I, I glommed onto and felt um, that sense of threat at all times whenever I was around that church and in, in, in that congregation. Um, and, you know, this is after attending for a while and, and, again, being invested in going to gender seminars and sexuality seminars and uh, going to Bible classes, going to gospel classes that were required of members. I mean, I was going to the church geez, at least three times a week um, for a couple of years. So I was very, you know, invested in a lot of these spaces. And it wasn't just like, I just went on Sundays kind of thing. So I think by just being a big part of that community with, again, not really being a part of that community, so not always knowing what was going on behind the scenes, um, but feeling it bodily and feeling that sense of conflict and threat, bodily speaking, um, and the, the, the spiritual aspect to that, um, had a huge impact on me, even as a non-Christian. And that was really fascinating to me to, to think through. Um, yeah. yeah, that's really funny that you say, well, it's not funny. It's actually kind of terrifying. But it's interesting that you say uh, that, you know, you didn't just go on Sundays. You went three times a week. Um, like, it, it's it's interesting because when I was growing up, um, that's like what my family would do, too. We weren't, we weren't Christians that just went on Sunday, right? We were really committed Christians that would go, you know, two or three times a week. Um so, I mean, what you wrote about the affective, affective labor um, seems real to me and so and so true. So laying it out like that is helpful. I think even outside of the context of Mars Hill, that's like a real thing that churches deal with. Um, well, uh, because the affective labor that you were noting there is so gendered, I thought we could talk about that for a minute. Um, it is, I mean, that's how I know Mark Driscoll as like a really weird sort of like masculine Christian kind of guy. Um, so sex and gender are huge components in your book. Um you uh which which makes sense uh because like that is mark driscoll's brand or maybe that's his posthumous brand after he kind of fell from mars hill um but uh what were some of the related themes rhetoric practices that you found about gender in your research like how did that really work in uh driscoll's church you kind of made some allusions to like the sexual ethics there but like um how did like masculinity fit into mark driscoll's christianity yeah so i talk a lot about um the militarized aspect 
um, to that masculine component. And, and we actually, I mean, this is something that's still ongoing, but I don't think Driscoll, it, I'm not watching Driscoll every day like <laughs> I used to. Um, so I'm not as in tune to what he's up to, but I do know a little bit and I don't have the sense that he's preaching about sex or gender in the same way that he used to. I think he's realized that that is an end game for him at this point, but other people have taken up that mantle like Jordan Peterson, for yeah. example, is someone that I'm, I'm currently investigating and I just went to his talk. Um, he was just in Seattle. He sold out two shows in Seattle. It's so similar to huh. what Driscoll was preaching. It's almost creepy to me, to be honest. Um, or actually, it is yeah. creepy. Um, but he doesn't have the he doesn't have the performance value that Driscoll did. So that's also fascinating to me. I was bored to tears when I went to see Jordan Peterson, but I could never I, I never found Driscoll boring. Um, but in any case, so. The militarized aspect to the brand of masculine Christianity that Driscoll preached um, was particularly interesting to me. And that played out in many different ways. I mean, one, just the way that he would talk about, you know, personal responsibility, um, familial responsibility, um, which is a very attractive and ongoing, again, trope, I think, you know, partially because of the capitalist moment that we find ourselves in, right? I mean, the, the state's di disinvesting in any sort of social welfare or justice. So, so you know, it, it falls more and more, and this has been going on for decades, but it falls more and more on individuals and families to, to take care of themselves, right? So so there's, there's that aspect that Driscoll was sort of preaching to his time, you know, and certainly the political economy. Um, and that was a very attractive value system for a lot of young men who were looking for purpose, looking for a cause, um, you know, the crisis of masculinity that has been an ongoing narrative now in the United States for some time. Again, that's something that Driscoll, I think, um, tapped into, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Um, so, so he was preaching a very you know, responsibility-driven um, doctrine to men in particular, um, and also telling them that in order to be real men, they had to, again, have sex at least once a day. Like, that was a very common, it would come up more often than I care to remember, um, as well as, as, you know, just, uh, you know, taking care of yourself and making sure you have the job, you have the wife, you have the family, you're giving to your church in terms of your tithes and talents, right? Again, emphasizing that volunteer labor aspect um, and making sure that that people understood that they needed to sacrifice for the church and, and in order for more people to, to find Jesus. So so it was it was that part, but then the militarized component would come in when he would preach on spiritual warfare, um, when he would talk about his own embattled sense of, again, sort of, you know, trying to make it in secular Seattle and liberal Seattle, um, trying to um, make sure that, you know, that everything was going well with the church. I mean, I, it seemed like so constant that I would hear Driscoll talking about, you know, him you know, enduring death threats, um, you know, the sense of, you know, feeling like he was exhausted from all of his own labor. Um, so that sense of him always giving, giving, giving and motivating men and, the, you know, that you need to give because I'm giving so much to you and making sure that the church is on the right path. So so there, it had a very kind of militarized aspect to it. And then it would just come out in the language, too. Like they would talk about, you know, men's training days, um, boot camps, 
Um, you know, there were there were uh, military missions whereby Driscoll's sermons and books would be shipped out to soldiers on bases. He would talk about, you know, um, the military as a very um, a great way of, of, of uh, you know, encouraging brotherhood, you know. Um, and then the, the church itself, and this was also something very interesting to me from the earliest days I started attending, would use um, Hollywood movies, especially um, war films, in order to, and this would again would come up a lot during men's retreats and men's training days, um, to sort of, I think, uh, I argue, affectively engage people in this militarized sense of, you know, um, self and, and, and uh, atmosphere. So, so there was this constant sense, again, of like embattlement, and it was often couched in militarized terms. And I argue in the book that the global war on terror certainly had an impact on this as well. Um, you know, Mark would often, you know, or, or not so often, but often enough that it became a pattern that I noted, um, talk about Islam attracting men in U.S. cities. So and, and, and Christians needing to react to that and and um, fight against that. Right. And so it definitely had um, and he would make jokes about Muslims, too. And, you know, so there were different ways that he would cultivate a, a sort of anti Muslim agenda um, without coming out and saying, like, Muslims are bad. Right. Um, so it was a very pernicious, seductive, um, and engaging way of training people to have that sort of sensibility without ideologically or theologically particularly taking that stance. Um, so anyway, that's, I mean, so I make, I make comparisons between him and Billy Sunday, for example. Um, I think that the kind of muscular Christianity that Sunday was preaching is resonant with the way that Driscoll would preach. But the, the difference being, again, that entrepreneurial component um, whereby, you know, Driscoll's preaching about growth and, and, and giving to the church so much and having so much of your life, life revolving around the church, um, you know, it was different from something like a Sunday's preaching about, you know, still speaking about social justice. Like that was a good thing. Um, that didn't really come up, uh, that wasn't on the radar at Mars Hill. Um, but there was giving again to, to soldiers and there were soldiers testifying in various spaces at the church too. So, so the sense of, of war and spiritual war, um, the war that was happening on the ground that continues now, the war on terror, um, was definitely a, a, a sensibility and an atmosphere that was cultivated. Yeah, um, seeing uh, Driscoll as a, a symptom of all these kind of global political situations, I think it's really useful because there is a tendency to abstract some of these like evangelical star pastors um, outside of their context, both for like people inside for obvious reasons, you know, who go to those churches, but also I think for like people trying to cover these movements, like they just sort of see them as completely exotic or like random, but uh, they are like symptomatic of capitalism or, you know, post 9-11 society. Um, so that's really great. Uh, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about some of the um, like stories that you found interviewing people at Mars Hill and afterwards. Uh, that's a big thing that comes up in the book. I mean, you clearly develop like a real um, sympathy and empathy and even, you know, like deep solidarity with uh, a lot of the people that you meet, despite, you know, vast differences in worldview or or whatever. Um, you know, I, I think back to my own time at, at a, I went to an under uh, an evangelical undergraduate school and uh, we had a, a friend there um, 
the my fiance at the time and now my wife uh we were just chatting with this you know new student who had just transferred there and she mentioned that she's a feminist christian and uh he couldn't believe it you know he was a he was a driscoll guy and thought that was a, a total contradiction in terms and uh over over time you know we we developed a pretty close friendship and um he doesn't uh identify that way anymore thankfully but um you know there is a, a certain kind of humanity underneath a lot of those things and i guess i'm just curious to hear if there are any kind of stories that really like stay with you after doing all that research yeah, I think, um, you know, what I speak about is, is tragic, and I, the, the, I can't really share. I, by the time I, I finished interviewing, and that didn't happen until the summer of 2016, um, because during this second phase of my fieldwork is when I really got to, to speak with people, particularly former leaders or staff um, that were closer to Driscoll or more part of the actual movement itself. Um, they would often speak about the kinds of bullying that would go on, for example, by Mark, but that would sometimes, you know, trickle down through leadership as well. Um, the kind of abuse and the kind of um, just sense of beleaguerdness. Um, and it's, it's really astonishing to me. By the end of 2016, I just, I needed to stop talking to people for a bit, not only to just write, but also to just sort of get some perspective on, you know, the, the sense of betrayal, um, the intensity of that for folks, um, the sense of, and, and the betrayal, you know, repentance is, is one of the, the concepts that I come back to in the book and um, for good reason. I mean, that that's sort of anthropology doing theory on the ground. Uh, repentance is a huge part of the story. And, you know, the fact that Mark and I, you know, still keep in touch with people today. I still am friends with people on Facebook and, and talk to people. Um, and the book has brought me back together with people in the sense that I've had some conversations of late. And Driscoll still hasn't repented to anybody that I know. Um, for, for hurting the harm that he did. And it was, it was systemic harm, but it was also obviously individualized harm. And, um, you know, that sense of betrayal, I think, is, is really the overriding kind of feeling that I have right now. And it's, it's hard because in the climate that we're in, politically speaking, that, like I said, I just feel like so many of these dynamics are ongoing and playing out now on a greater you know, stage, um, whether that be through figures like Jordan Peterson or Milo Yiannopoulos um, or, you know, other, other figures that are taking up the mantles and the sort of trolling dynamics that Driscoll embodied himself when he was um, the leader at Mars Hill, um, but as well as, you know, again, the Trump administration and, and seeing how my friends from Mars Hill are, are, you know, falling into different sorts of camps or reactions um, to how Christianity is being used now by the current administration. Um, it's just really, it's, it's fractious, it's difficult. And um, for me personally, it's been hard sometimes to, you know, see the kinds of mocking spite that will occur um, when victories um, from a more Christian nationalist sense happen, like they have this week, um, you know, and and just just thinking to myself, my gosh, like these are these are the very kinds of dynamics that were playing out, you know, a few just a few years ago um, that people were rallying against and and sort of finding, you know, and I found deep solidarity with them as they were rallying against that bullying and that 
the um, you know aggressiveness and the kind of defensive posture and the, the, the sense of ongoing threats and that the morphousness of that you know um, it was just a it was a really exciting even though sad also exciting sort of a sense of my gosh like would be we can find some kind of common ground um, but now it's really hard to, to have that same kind of understanding or that same kind of um, faith at times. Um, so, so that sense of betrayal and that sense of, of tragedy, I think, is just something that is still ongoing and it's still um, playing out in different ways for different folks. And I think that there's nobody that I've seen that is saying, oh, I'm not a Christian anymore, I don't identify as an evangelical. Um, but but there are people who are having a lot of questions about what that means um, and and their own sort of um, understandings of what it is to be a Christian. I mean, so so those that kind of questioning that's happening was happening at Mars Hill uh, at by the end, and now it's happening again, but because of the current administration. Um, so it's it's an ongoing process, basically. It's not over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a really good segue into uh, kind of the last question that we had um, to kind of wrap the conversation around. Um, so at the end of your book, you make some pretty interesting interventions in the conversation around like the politics of white evangelicalism in the U.S. And uh, in that context, you suggest uh, something you call the vulnerability of encounter as a kind of like political space. Um, and you, you say that was exemplified in a protest that you had seen and participated in outside of Mars Hill. Uh, so could you connect some of these dots for us? Like a lot of pundits are talking about the political hegemony of white evangelicalism, which is obviously still, uh, <laughs> you know, not, uh, it's pretty, uh, pretty un unfazed by Donald Trump, it seems like. So um, do you see any kind of like counter hegemony growing from like within or out of that same white evangelical demographic or, uh, you know, maybe on the fringes? Or do you think there's um, maybe something stronger or, or outside of white evangelicalism altogether that you've sort of been seeing in your research. But yeah, just kind of drawing all these things together, you know, your research then and the, the things that are happening now. Yeah, for sure. So to me, it's not, I don't know about counter hegemony because I don't think it's that organized. I don't see that occurring yet, which doesn't mean that something might not develop. Um, but I think, you know, the way the administration is using, um, you know, certain kinds of moral value-driven issues like abortion, um, you know, is is a deep conflict for people who don't necessarily resonate with other policies that the Trump administration is promulgating, but do see Trump being a pro-life president. Um, so uh, that's, you know, something that I think has fractured people um, and made them very conflicted about, again, their own sort of positionality with regards to um, their understanding their worldview um, as a Christian about certain kinds of political issues, um, such that a counter-hegemony, uh, to, to my mind, hasn't, you know, concretized, it hasn't come to fruition yet. But again, that's not to say that it won't. But I think this administration is very uh, smart in the way that it does the divide and conquer um, dynamic, uh, and so that's that's been that's been occurring. Um, but I would, you know, the vulnerability of an, or the encounter and vulnerability and and that sense of the necessity for that um, is something I still deeply believe in, and I do think is possible. But there's such a defensive posture that is being, um, you know, 
uh, catalyzed, uh, inspired, incited, and constantly driving um, so many of the conversations that I see happening um, that it's difficult to be open to the possibility that we are vulnerable as we are communicating from these defensive places. Um, I absolutely believe that um, communication, even when you're you know, anonymous and you're posting something online, is about vulnerability. And we are vulnerable no matter what in those moments of communicating. Um, and we're always open. Our posture has to be in order to communicate. Um, but having said that, when, when you're consciously coming from a defensive place because you feel, again, like you, you have to push your own agenda through or push your own value system through, and these are things that somebody like a Jordan Peterson talks about very openly, um, and again, that the Trump administration is using to their own advantage and exploiting, um, I think that it becomes more difficult to then, again, understand that you're already vulnerable and you're already open. Um, and so I argue that that was happening at a certain moment in time with regards to what happened at Mars Hill, in part because um, people felt so deeply betrayed and, and understood that they had some culpability in that how, how Mars Hill fell apart. Um, and they felt duped. You know, a lot of people, you know, shared that with me by the at the end um, when I was interviewing them that they felt duped, they felt betrayed, they felt um, culpable. Um, and and so, you know, it really it really was striking to me when leaders came out about this. And again, these are white men um, who had great positions of authority and power within the church system for a long time. Um, said, I, you know, I need to repent for my own sins in this, like my own you know, culpability and what happened and what went wrong and the harm that was done and the culture of fear that was promulgated. And so I do know that that's possible, <laughs> but, um, you know, that's not the moment that we're in currently. Um, and I think, I don't, I'm not exactly sure. I'm still trying to this week wrap my head around what might have to happen for that to, to be an awareness again. But I know that that's underneath a lot of, of possibilities for change. And, I, you know, and so resistance. So, for example, I talk about vulnerability as opposed to resistance because resistance or a counter hegemony has to have an object or a figure or an issue. And right now, I just think that so much is coming at people at all times. It's really hard to get a beat on what you're resisting because there's just a new thing, you know. And, um, and so it's hard to see currently what it's going to take to really sort of unify a sense of um, a, a counter-hegemony or a, a sort of sense of resistance against whatever it is. And again, I'm not even sure that that's as useful as it may have been um, in the past. I wonder if social media and the way that we're interacting with and through technologies, um, which is a part of my book's narrative too, might require a different kind of um, way of thinking about or processing what it means to resist. And I do think that vulnerability plays a huge part in this um, and recognizing our own vulnerabilities. And again, culpabilities such that, you know, these us and them kinds of dynamics or right, left or liberal conservative um, aren't really, you know, honored as reality. Um, and that, and that, you know, those binaries and the dichotomous relations and hierarchies that they create are recognized as, as artificial and ideological illusions that if we feed into them, 
um, we are not going to be able to get past and into a better, more positive ground for conversation and change. Um, so, so I work very actively against, you know, um, creating a space through this book where those us and them binaries play out. Um, and again, I put, I put myself in the scene as uh, a feminist non-Christian in part because I believe in that project deeply. Um, and I believe in it in part because of what happened at the church and the way that people processed that um, tragedy and, and actually, you know, used it in some ways to be a transformative movement, not only for themselves, but for um, understanding relationship differently and for understanding what it is to repent on a very deep level. Um, but, but yeah, I, this week has really messed me up that way because <laughs> it's, it's hard, you know, because there are, I definitely have friends who I, I really do think now they're, they're buying into a, a Christian nationalist narrative and, um, and that scares me because it, it's, yeah, it's very, very viscerally, um, real for them and it, it it's it's hard to to watch um i think that the, the sense of suffering the way that the harm is being perpetrated the way that lives are being destroyed um is very lost and and that tangibility and that um, yeah the tactileness and the reality of that um it has to 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 come to the forefront again and uh you know i think it would be, I mean, so I, I wonder if maybe uh, a sense of betrayal when it comes to Trump, how that, what that might look like, you know, in that kind of, for a Christian nationalist, like what, what would it mean for Trump to betray? Um, and if I could, I would make that happen. <laughs> I think that would be, that would, that would actually lead to, again, that, that moment of vulnerability that people are very conscious of, very aware of and recognize like, oh my gosh, I have been a part of this very horrifying process um, and I need to repent for it, right? Um, and not rely on someone like, uh, you know, the government or, or Trump or whoever to, 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 to make that happen. But um, yeah, and so I, I don't know, that's, that's like how vulnerability and encounter play out for me in terms of the book and, and what I see as a, as a positive that came out of the tragedy that was Mars Hill's fall, and uh, but um, but Driscoll still has a platform, and the administration is what it is. So we'll see how things play out. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I think that's a, a really interesting uh, kind of thing that you do in your book, uh, talking about vulnerability. It's something that I think that Dean and I uh, and this podcast maybe aren't so good about. I mean, being leftists, we're all about struggle, struggle, struggle constantly. But um, I think that we can take that idea of vulnerability as a challenge and something to think through. Um, yeah, well, I think, I mean, that's what I was saying about, I really appreciate podcasts. I think this podcast is a great example. I mean, even though you, I, you definitely take your own position and I honor that. And I think that it's really important to be very clear about what, you know, what kind of position you might be taking when you, you're taking one. But, but at the same time, you're doing it from a very open place where you're creating something, you know, and I think, and that's another facet to this, I think, thinking about creativity with relationship to resistance rather than protest, protest, mm. protest, like you were saying, struggle, 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 I think, you know, is a really important component to what I'm describing and what needs to happen. Um, protest is important too, because it, it gives you that sense of belonging and that sense of like, oh my gosh, thank, thank God there's other people who think that I like mm. I do, because sometimes it's really important to do. But I also think that there's these other ways of having to reconfigure that such that 
Um, and I think this this podcast is a good example, actually, where you're creating a space uh, for for something different to be happening. And I think, and for those different voices um, to play out, um, I think it's really great. And it, and I mean, you know, taking a position is fine. I'm just not for taking sides. Um, I think I think once we start thinking about again in terms of taking sides, I, I think that's a it's a misnomer and it's an end game that's not going to be leading to a positive in a positive direction ultimately. Well, um, thank you for that glowing review of our podcast. Um, <laughs> appreciate <laughs> yeah, that. Be sure to include yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's uh, been about an hour, so we don't want to monopolize any more of your time. But thank you so much for coming to talk about your book. We really appreciated it. It was a really interesting uh, book and a cool conversation to hear you talk about it. Thank you so much for the invitation and for reading. I really appreciate it. And yeah, again, thank you for, for your work and what you're doing. I really, I've been, I actually read a little bit about, um, Matt, you had that book come out. What was it called? The ontology is a part of the title. Oh, Ontic Flows. Yeah. That was like a digital humanities <laughs> book. Yeah. Yeah. Really cool. I want to look more into that. Cause I'm, I mean, I'm very invested in media technologies driven research too. And my next book is going to be probably even more so. Um, so that's, it's very yeah. cool. You guys are doing some great. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Magnificast. If you like what you heard on this episode, you should go buy Jessica Johnson's book, Biblical Porn. You can find it on Amazon or probably most other places that publish books. Um, Sell books, really. Um, Also, if you want to support us, you can find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash themagnificast. Uh, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Facebook, get into our Facebook group, The Magnificast Basement. Um, those are the places you'll find us. Don't look anywhere else, just those places. Um, also, all of the, uh, oh, wait, um, oh, uh, I should probably also mention, too, that we are part of two really cool podcast networks. One is called Theology Corner, and the other one is called Critical Mediations. You can find all kinds of other good podcasts on those networks. Uh, Friendly Anarchism is on both of them, and you should be listening to them. Uh, Rev Left Radio is on Critical Mediations. Um, Tyler Hill's Gods and Ghosts is so good. I think we mentioned that one last week. So get out there and listen to all the podcasts. Uh, let your life be consumed with podcasts, I guess. Um, okay. Uh, also, all of the music in this episode was produced by Amaria Armstrong, and the outro music is by The Illogical Spoon. So, oh, uh, so- hey, uh, sorry. I, I just got out of this cold shower, but I thought I oh. should mention um, yeah. that uh, <laughs> the Friendly Fire Collective in Philadelphia has been doing all kinds of really cool stuff, and we sent out a newsletter through the Magnifesto, um, first time in a long time, and uh, Christians for Socialism has a financial appeal going for them, and you can donate to them on Venmo at birdpoet, B-I-R-D-P-O-E-T. If you don't know what they've been up to, they've been part of the Occupy Ice stuff in Philadelphia and uh, just really brave, creative stuff. They have loads of important reflections you should read on their blog and uh, just really out there uh, living that Christian leftist dream. Uh, and you can support them even from the comfort of your own home. If you're not able to you know, make it out to a, a rally or protest, you can still help the people who can. So just thought we should mention that as we sign off. See you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. 
There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no damn between us and our Lord